Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a healthier, wealthier, and more connected place. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and I'm joined by Aaron Powell. Now, if your phone habits are anything like mine, you're familiar with this pattern. It's the middle of the morning, you're at your desk, about half an hour into a work project, when your cell phone rings. You glance at the screen, you see it's not a number you know, but it is from your area code, so you take the call. And then an automated voice tries to sell you, I don't know, an extended warranty for your car or tells you the IRS is going is auditing you or, or something or the other. And you realize you've been the recipient of a robocall. You hang up in disgust and you try to get your head back into your work, annoyed by the distraction. And this can happen multiple times a day. If you're an ordinary American, this happens uh, as often as 150 times per year. The number of robocalls has exploded to nearly 48 billion calls in the U.S. alone last year. It's a big problem. It's gotten to the point where people are increasingly unwilling to use their phones as, well, as phones. Today, we're going to talk with someone who has a possible solution for that problem. We're here with Ethan Garr, Vice President of Teltech Systems. We're going to talk about his company's solution for that problem, a piece of software called RoboKiller. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, to start us off, can you walk us through, first of all, what the RoboKiller people are doing? Like on their side, how do they make our phones think they're receiving a call from another number? Like what's their process? Sure. So most of these automated calls you're getting are auto-dialed, meaning uh, they're just automatically dialed. And most of the time, uh, it's not just, it's pretty random. They're not calling you because you're on a list. They're calling you because you're the next number up. So uh, they start with everybody in your area code and they work their way out. Um, but what you're specifically referring to is known as spoofing. And spoofing is uh, the process by which you can change your caller ID. Um, spoofing is a tool by on its on the surface, it's nothing more than a, a tool that helps helps or helps people uh, in protect their privacy and security. But it can be misused for nefarious purposes, and that's the problem. It has been used by telemarketers, uh, especially in the last few years, as a weapon uh, against consumers. When they spoof their caller ID, they're changing those phone numbers uh, mostly to try to dupe you into picking up the phone a phone call that you wouldn't normally pick up. Neighbor spoofing where the phone number looks local to you is a very common one. We think it's well more than 60% of the calls that are being made now. Neighbor spoofing makes the phone number look local to you. So you live in the 732 area code. So the next number that comes rings to you is a 732-555 number or 566 number. That number comes to you and now you have a decision to make. Is it my child's school calling? Is it a uh, my pharmacy calling, letting me know that my prescription is ready? Or is it another scammer? More and more, increasingly, it's becoming the latter. It's the scammer calling you. But how do you make that decision? How do you know it's safe to pick up the phone? So RoboKiller is a tool that we've created that gets in that line, in that call path and makes the decision for you. It decides what calls are wanted versus unwanted based on a very, uh, very complex and uh, thoughtful algorithm that uses different tools like audio fingerprinting, machine learning, and user feedback to power a block list in real time. And when we do that, we're able to make these good decisions for consumers. So we know which calls are the ones you want. We know when it's your child's school calling or your pharmacy versus someone just spoofing a phone number. How does this fingerprinting or machine learning work? Because so like to analogize this to spam filtering, you know, so I get, we get 
extraordinary amounts of spam emails are sent out all the time, but we seem to have mostly solved that problem and I basically never see them. Um, but but one of the advantages that a spam filter has is it can – it doesn't just know the, the sender and recipient, but it can see the content of the email. So it can check that against patterns and whatnot. But with a call, it, it seems like – just by its very nature, you don't know what the content of that call is until you pick up the phone. Exactly. That's And that, of course, is the big challenge. But RoboKiller actually can get in the call path on many of these calls. So y- your point is, uh, is exactly uh, what the problem is. If the phone number is spoofed, then whether you know that that number, whether you have that number, on, if you don't have that number on a list or that number is changing every time it's called, it's going to be hard to know which ones to block and which not to block. It's not to say that we can't use caller ID as a signal, but we are trying not to use it exclusively as a signal and instead use the audio within those calls. So we're doing a couple things in terms of audio analysis. One is this audio fingerprinting. So if you've ever held up your phone and said what song is playing, uh, maybe you've used a product like Shazam, that's audio fingerprinting. And that's the process where audio is turned into data and then data is compared from one data set to another. Um, and you can do some extraordinary things with that. So on the surface, we can, we can just simply look at one, one audio clip versus another, and we can see if they're the same audio clip. If it is, we know it's a robocall because humans can't speak the exact same way every call. How useful, like uh, when you say you fingerprint uh, a phone call, is the matter of, um, is it essentially the, like the, the, you can identify one robot that you set, speaks two different messages. In other words, like, is it the timbre of their voices or is it the words they're saying? What What's being fingerprinted? So uh, both of those things might be signals in an audio fingerprinting process. So essentially, uh, when we when we look at audio fingerprints, like one is just simply comparing blocks of audio against another. But we're also using signals within the audio to look for different patterns that we know are specific to a recording of a human voice versus a human voice um, in a conversation. So the one nice thing is when a telemarketer calls you, there are certain things that they have to do in the patterns of their conversation um, that are pretty distinct, right? Because, you know, if they just take a break and don't talk to you for a few minutes, which might be more part of a conversation, Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't bode well for a, for trying to uh, for a sales pitch. So there's different things like that that we can look at. But we're looking at hundreds of signals all at once. I mean, we're looking at the time of day. We're looking at where the calls appear to be coming from. We're looking at caller ID and 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 those things. But in certain cases, we can actually answer the call uh, and do that audio analysis before we actually pass the call to you. And we're getting better and better at that every day. Um, and I think that's really where our future is because. We believe that as long as spoofing is growing in uh, how it's being misused, that you have to use audio to fight this problem. If you just use caller ID, your effectiveness is just going to continue to go farther down. This sounds like um, uh, Google's call screen uh, program where it answers the call for you uh, and says, who are you? Why are you calling? The you know it's it's a robot interrogating the ro- their robot and um, based on what it says you can see a transcription on your phone and then decide whether to take the call to market it as spam is, is it kind of is that a similar system? Yeah, there's definitely similarities there. Of course, what what we're trying to do though is take the the headache off the consumer away from the consumer. If you have to screen every call, if you have to look at every call, 
we're probably not helping you as much as you would like. Most people want their phone not to ring, right? I mean, you just described how every morning you're getting five or six of these calls. We, the average American is actually getting 22 calls per month um, based on our, our statistics. And that means that every day it's your meetings, your dinner, your time with your family that's being interrupted. We have, with RoboKiller, we're able to intercept these calls for you, block them so that you don't actually get a, have a ringing phone. Um, so I think it's better than a screener from that perspective because we're taking that piece of it out of your hands. But what's neat about RoboKiller is that we're actually answering those calls in the background. So after we block those calls, that call gets forward to our servers. Your phone's not busy. It's not taking up your minutes. But that phone call from the scammer is now going to one of our answer bots. And answer bots are robots of our own that actually talk back to the spammers and waste their time, which is incredibly fun, um, can be hilarious. And the conversations between the spammers and the answer bots are recorded. So you can listen to them. You can share them with your friends. Um, and you can actually get a little bit of revenge, um, which we think is important. I think enough people have had enough um, have had enough of getting their lives interrupted by these calls. I mean, if you think about it, at 5.6 billion robocalls a month, this has really reached epidemic proportions. It's not just a, a minor problem, it's a gigantic problem. And sure, for most of us, it's the annoyance and the interruption. And that's bad enough. But at the worst, at the worst you know, iteration of this, people are having their, their entire wealth stolen from them. The elderly, they're losing, you know, their identities are being stolen, their pockets are being picked. Sometimes these scams result in hundreds of thousands of dollars in loss, and someone has to do something about it. Someone has to get in the way. Um, and I think most people have had the experience. They've had a long day, and they get that call, um, and they pick it up, and it's just another so frustrating. They start screaming back at the telemarketer. This is a great way to do that. You can, you can create your own answer bot, and that answer bot will take every spammer's call who calls you and waste their time. And last month, we estimate we stole 113,000 hours of spammers' time because the answer bots are smart. They actually know how to press one or press nine to get to the human being. So um, they're a great tool in this fight. It seems like, why isn't this happening on the carrier's end? Like, so AT&T or Verizon gets much more call volume than I assume you guys do because it requires, in order to use your service, I have to download the app and install it. And, you know, only a fraction of people who have an iPhone have Robocaller installed. Um, so why is this why is this up to startups like you and not happening at the carrier level? So it's a great question. I think... Um... Typically, people look at this problem and they want the government or carriers to solve it. Um, they've, you know, they're constantly complaining to the FCC and the FTC. I think it's the largest complaints, uh, largest block of complaints they get are about robocalls and telemarketing calls. Um, and you know, people are constantly complaining to their carriers um, and saying, "Hey, we want you to solve this problem for us." But it's not an easy problem to solve. The, there's a couple things. One is there is no switch to flip off spoofing. Um, and if you did, you'd have a gigantic problem because spoofing isn't only used for nefarious purposes. Uh, every time you call a, uh, many businesses that use what are called PBX phone systems, hosted, uh, hosted phone systems, they use spoofing so that you see a consistent number from that business. If you turn, if you could turn off spoofing, which you can't, um, it would break all of those systems tomorrow. So it's not a, it's not a, you know, an easy problem to solve from that perspective. 
Also, our phone network has developed over a couple of hundred, you know, over a hundred years. And every call goes through many hops between you and me. So if I'm on AT&T and you're on T-Mobile, it may go through seven or eight hops before, you know, before it goes from here to Washington, D.C. And in that process, a lot of things can happen to that, that call and caller ID can be changed and it can be misused as it is. So it's a hard problem to solve. And there's always a question as to how eager the carriers are to solve it because to some degree, they do get paid to connect calls. So there's a question as to how motivated they are to take out that part of their income. They'll argue that the cost of servicing all these calls, the clogging of the network, um, makes it so that they would love to get rid of them. But I don't know if the truth is somewhere in between. Um, the government ha- is limited in what they can do. Many of these calls are originating overseas. So even if the FCC or FTC have jurisdiction over those calls, it's very hard for them to enforce. I mean, two guys sitting in a room in Malaysia making phony IRS phone calls, um, that would be very hard for uh, for law enforcement to, uh, to tackle. Um, so ultimately, I think it comes down to you have a technology problem and you're looking for technological solutions to that problem. For us, uh, it was actually the government that got us into this fight. So Teltech has been, we've been making privacy and security apps for several years. Um, and, you know, we're always looking to help people solve these problems on their mobile phones. Um, whether it was uh, with TrapCall, our product, we ha- um, were able to help people solve the problem of uh, block call harassment. We have a product called TapeCall that allows you to record calls on your iPhone. So we've always been sort of in this game. But about four years ago, the FTC held a competition called RoboCalls Humanity Strikes Back, which we participated in and we actually won. Um, and Good I think movie it was title. A, yeah. <laughs> And I think the, the FTC very, very smartly said, look, this is a problem that legislation enforcement alone is not going to tackle. So they said, how do we get technology people involved? And they put out a $25,000 prize and it got people like us excited about solving that problem. And at first, you know, we looked at it as, oh, there's this technology audio fingerprinting. We think we could use it to solve this problem. We got excited about the innovation side of it. But very quickly, we quick, very quickly we learned just how serious the problem is and how it was affecting people's lives every day. You know, it wasn't just the the harassment, it wasn't just the annoyance. It really was impacting people's lives very negatively. And we said, let's try to tackle that. Um, and then we got excited about and passionate about it. And you know, now it's really the focus of our business. We have about 80 people who are really uh, passionate and concerned about the robocall problem and we're looking to solve it and make our algorithms better every day. Now that we've had a chance to discuss the robocall phenomenon and possible solutions to it, Aaron and I thought we'd bring in Will Duffield to join us to discuss some of the precedents for how to handle robocalls, specifically the deluge of email spam that hit American inboxes in the mid to late 90s and early aughts. There was a lot of panic about what to do about this spam, a lot of proposed responses. And yet, email spam has become a much more manageable problem since. When when we speak about the decline of spam, the fact that the problem was solved vis-a-vis email for the most part, um, we also need to look to the law and the fact that in in a case called Cyber Promotions v. America Online, AOL's ability to screen spam was legally challenged and then upheld by the courts. Um, this, we might call them uh, 
direct mail advertising firm, we might call them a spammer, um, group called Cyber Promotions alleged that in filtering its emails out of their, their network, AOL was acting like a state actor. Is, is exercising the municipal powers or public services traditionally provided by the state and, and sought to bring it back to Marsh v. Alabama, the old company town case. Now, it, it seems laughable today to think that you'd receive an AOL CD in the mail, put it into your computer and suddenly by, by interacting with this, uh, find yourself living in some kind of company town. Um, but it was important that, that the law clarified this. So why does the company town ruling matter? What, what was banned for company towns? Well, company towns were essentially treated as state actors for First Amendment purposes. So while they were private towns, they still couldn't say prevent you from receiving certain mail um, or preventing someone from from walking around to to proselytize, perhaps um, there there are different different standards and restrictions. And so, if AOL is a company town, they same thing. They can't if they're a, yeah. a state actor for First Amendment purposes, then they can't be filtering mail. Um, and and this case now applies um, to some extent or sets case law for how we treat platforms' ability to uh, moderate speech. This was an instance where. We there was a problem. I mean, spam was a big problem that made at times email feel unusable, and it was getting in the way of a revolutionary technology that we make gripe about a lot now. As we are just our inboxes fill and fill with stuff that we don't get around to responding to and whatnot. But I mean, email changed the world, <clears throat> and lots of people when the things were getting bad, lots of people calling. Well, we need we need laws to fix this. We need criminal penalties. We need, we need like state methods to solve this problem. But what the state could do was provide clarity. Right. But this is an instance where basically what the state did was got out of the way. It said, it said like, no, and look, committed this is, to getting out we of the can, way. We can let people innovate in this area. We're not going to hold them to this particular set of standards. We're going to let, we're going to let technology happen. And Technology happened and in a decade, decade and a half, we had basically solved this extraordinary problem and it was all through just tech and innovation and not we're going to criminally punish spammers, we're going to sue people, we're going to set up laws, which would not have solved the problem at all. Well, and there's – I mean we can we can kind of the, – the historical perspective is this shift. I think this happened in the 80s and 90s for a variety of reasons from – an understanding of corporations as primarily like thinking of them as extensions of the public will, that the reason why a corporation exists is to promote the public interest. And in that sense, they should have a tight relationship with government authority, with regulators. So a railroad isn't just a company trying to make money. No, it's providing transportation for the for the public, you know, common wheel for the public good, and it needs to be tightly regulated by a government agency that will set how much they can charge and will determine where routes can go and can't go. And it's a very different way about thinking about companies, where as opposed to how we started thinking about companies and you know in the in in digital companies in the online revolution in Silicon Valley, like so. 
it's not just the 90s story, but the idea of companies as things not that serve the public interest per se, they might, they'll produce things that serve the public interest, but they do so uh, by trying to make profit off of coming up with cool, new, disruptive ideas. Um, it's a different way of thinking about in a, corporate innovation. And I think that also played a role here as well. So they said, like with the internet, hands off. I mean, there's a variety of laws, the Internet Tax Freedom Act, the you know Telecommunications Acts and Communication Decency Act of the 90s. There's rulings like the one you're talking about, Will, with uh, for AOL, where the government said, we're going to let them experiment and do what they will. And we got some good things out of that. I mean, among other things, we fixed we fixed the email spam problem. I mean, even today, my understanding is that over half of all emails sent are spam. They just don't show up in your inbox anymore. Right. So it's a problem in the sense that this is costing its traffic and it would be nice if so much of the pipes yeah. weren't tied up, the series of tubes weren't tied up with spam. But, but the real cost of spam was Our me time. having to yeah. filter it and that's that problem has been alleviated. So let's apply that kind of thinking to robocalls. Um, like wh where do we see that same kind of – I mean where do we see the bad reasoning? Like there's people who overreacted to the spam problem and called for bad solutions. But then there's also the actual solutions that worked. Where do you see that happening in the robocall space? I mean I, I am for uh, I guess greater deterrence-oriented solutions. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'd like to see a, a, a private right of action kind of revived when that it comes mean? to – well, there's the idea that – when someone hits you with these spam calls, especially when they're disguising where they're coming from, they're pretending to be your neighbor when they aren't, uh, they're often engaged in outright fraud in terms of the sorts of products or claims they're making to you and and often you know prey upon the mentally infirm and, and weak in that respect. Um, they're preventing you from using this wonderful piece of technology that you carry around. I mean obviously it's not just a phone anymore but that was its original stated purpose. You can call people on it. You can expect that when someone's calling you, they are who they seem to be for the most part. Um, but when you're getting you know, 10, 20 spoofed spam calls a day, you really just can't trust that phone function of your phone anymore. And traditionally within the common law, we've had uh, a tort called trespass to chattels, chattels being your property, some, some possession of yours. And these are trespasses that don't amount to a full taking but prevent you from making use of something you own. So does this then – does the, the hardness of this problem – and there are other reasons why blocking robocalls has been – a problem too, but it's it's a more difficult problem. Um, does the difficulty of that problem then, and and the super irritating nature of it, because in some ways it's we get you know over the course of a day you get fewer robocalls than like I used to get spam in my in my inbox, but the robocalls are more disruptive because they're ringing and I have to look and answer them and they they're like interrupting me, whereas my email I can just like if I don't check it all day, then I might have a bunch of stuff, but I, it's like on my terms. And you don't have to pick to receive each individual email. Right. So receiving spam won't then discourage you from receiving other emails in general the yes. way it does when it comes to picking up your phone. So my question is, does this the, – these additional problems with 
robocalls, the difficulty of filtering them and their disruptiveness. And so they, they kind of become more and more irritating. Uh, does that mean that we are more susceptible to jumping into heavy-handed state solutions because it's harder for the tech to solve this problem. So even even these robocall blockers, you know, you read the reviews of them and and they work and I have one installed on my phone. It works fairly well, but it's not its success rate is nowhere near Gmail spam filter success rate. Did, that we will rush into things because we just can't take it anymore. Is this a problem where it solves itself <clears throat> not by not even by technological changes in the way that we get phone calls, but that we just simply stop getting phone calls. That you know, it's like I, I don't get. I can place voice. Yeah, I can place voice calls through Telegram. I can place voice calls. Can you do it through WhatsApp? I don't. I don't use WhatsApp. I'm not that hip. But uh, but through all of these these messaging services, you can do it through Facebook Messenger, um, and we don't get spam through those because those have rules in place. This might be one of these issues and the, we see issues like this where everyone is just convinced like, oh my god, there's this problem and we you know, we got to try to fix it within like the sphere that it's happening, but the it eventually gets solved because we just kind of that sphere just declines in mm -hmm, significance mm -hmm. so much that we're not really concerned about it anymore and we're in a new sphere where things work better. Well, it's kind of sad though because I mean there is still I mean we're there are people who want to use their phones as phones to, to take voice and they're not because of the clogging going on by robocalls. So you're not wrong. I mean people are solving it by taking fewer calls from any number I don't recognize. I don't take it. On Aaron's uh, kind of broader technological switchover point, I, I think that holds true. But at the same time, during that last phase, the issue or, or problem posed by phone spamming is exacerbated because only those left in the, the phone pool at that point are going to be those probably most susceptible to spam. The, the least technologically literate will be the slowest to move and then you'll have a, a target-rich environment for spammers for a while which seems unfortunate for those folk. It's like with uh, email, late adopters, the elderly who are slowest to get email accounts uh, on, on average were the ones who are most vulnerable to email phishing attacks and the like, right? So I think it's a, it's a point well made. I mean my, my in, in, uh, inclination is to say rather than just giving up on voice altogether, like there are um, hopeful signs of changes that are coming. So right now the big carriers have been testing successfully. Uh, something called um, let's see where I put it here. It's a new protocol. So instead of VoIP, which is the standard, what is that? Voice on voice over IP. Um, instead of the VoIP protocol, which is what robocalls typically use, they're doing a new one called Shaken uh, backslash Stir. So Shaken Stir is going to replace VoIP, which your phone, every phone would have a unique authenticating certificate. The carrier would check when you make a call that the certificate token matches an encrypted private key to make sure it's not spoofed. It actually is that phone making the call. So when your phone buzzes, you have some kind of check mark. So the the number is actually the number. It's not this would target spoofing. It basically makes spoofing harder. That tokenization and encryption process, that's what the internet does. SSL certification, that's what that is. We're just now this new protocol is going to apply it to voice, to phones. 
Um, which raises the question of like, why have we not been, it, it's crazy. Like we've been, our phone technology, our phone protocol is half a century out of date functionally. Um, it's not up to web 1.0, right? Uh, even S, even SSL keeps getting updates and there's you know new protocols being introduced and developed. And again, some of this goes back to like an issue of government intervention, creating unintended consequences, like, um, there's a there's been a disincentive from the FCC to update the protocol, but now the FCC is saying, okay, go ahead, guys, you should update this. It's okay if that if we're going to let you even potentially charge your customers more under the new protocol to you know to reflect the cost difference of running a new protocol in this this encryption system. Um, just do this so we can solve the spoofing problem. So that's that's hopeful. Like we can spoofing might be on the way out in the next that's, year or two. That's hopeful, but. The other side, the spammers, they aren't technologically static either and particularly as natural language processing advances. Right now, the spam call follows a recorded script. It might have some variation within that based upon inputs but there are pre-recorded phrases that are spat at you by a machine. When we look at something like Google's latest iteration of its voice assistant, that sort of technology deployed as the payload of a spam call, um, some algorithm designed to deceive and get you to make the buy, give your credit card information, whatever is set as its goal, um, particularly if they have some information about you that can be fed into it to make it sound realistic. Um, a, a pressing call from your sister's physician, something like that. We, we can imagine it doing a lot of damage. The kind of concerning thing about voice in in general is that by the time you receive it, the, the payload has been delivered. Um, it's not like you need to click one link further. That, that information um, is spooled out over the course of the call. Um, so I... I want to be hopeful, but um, I, I am concerned that the other side will just up its game. Well, that's all we have time for today. Until next week, trying to answer any phone calls that you, from numbers you don't recognize on your phone. And until next week's episode, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.